This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill är så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and I've got another fun beat writer interview for you today. I talked to David Shane from the Review Journal in Las Vegas, all about the Vegas Golden Knights. It was a really fun chat. We went a bit long because there were a lot of players to talk about, and who's complaining, right? Uh, we, we really covered a lot of ground, and it, it was really fun. I think you're really going to like this interview. Before we get to that, of course, let me mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com, which is the top fantasy hockey website in the whole entire world. I'm always over at Frozen Tools prepping for these episodes and doing my research for fantasy hockey. It's an invaluable resource. I feel like a lot of people don't even realize it outside of maybe keeping Carlson listeners because I always mention it, but Frozen Tools is one of the best things out there. And then the actual site itself, Dabber Hockey, you've got great articles all the time, daily ramblings coming every single day from really smart people like Michael Clifford, Ian Gooding, you know, the, the whole team over there. So you definitely want to check it out and be up to speed with everything going on in fantasy over at DauberHockey.com. But with that, let's go to my interview with David Shane, all about the Vegas Golden Knights. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, really excited for this next interview. It's time to talk Vegas Golden Knights. And I've got a ringer here, Golden Knight reporter for the Las Vegas Review Journal, David Shane. David, welcome to the show. Awesome to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was really excited when you agreed to come on because you are the man when it comes to tweeting about the Vegas Golden Knights. I'm excited to talk to you about them because this team, you must have a fun job, right? I just talked to uh, Alan Mitchell about the Edmonton Oilers, and that's a team that's only made the playoffs once since 2006. Meanwhile, Vegas started just three seasons ago, makes it to the cup finals in their first year. Then last year, it was looking like they were going to go on another run before Cody Eakin took that major penalty in the third period versus the Sharks, and, and that was all she wrote there. Uh, and then this year, year three, was looking as good as ever for the Golden Knights. Uh, at the time of the pause, they sat first in the Pacific, earning them a bye into the playoffs. If this NHL return to play happens, which it does seem like it's going to happen according to how busy your day was today. Uh, <laughs> Though, actually, uh, when you look closer, things weren't looking as good for Vegas uh, all the way through the year. Like, after losing 4 nothing to Minnesota on February 11th, uh, the team was tied for third in the Pacific with Calgary and Arizona. They were just a couple points away from being outside of the playoff picture. But after that game, a switch got flipped. Vegas was unstoppable for the next month. They won 11 of their remaining 13 games to secure that top spot in the division. 
Do you have any idea what changed in that final month that led Vegas to find that next gear and become such an, an, an and become such an unbeatable team? Like, did it have to do with Pete DeBoer taking over as the coach? Did he make any changes that contributed to this run? Yeah, kind of all of the above. I think. I mean, I, you know, to start with, obviously, they were a team that was expected to do well from the beginning. So it wasn't like they had a you know an empty cupboard or anything like that. If anything, they were sort of underachieving which may have cost Gerard Glantz his job in, mm. in essence. And, and I think it took a little bit for them to adjust to uh, Pete DeBoer. And, you know, the systems weren't much different, but there were a, a few tweaks, a, a couple of significant things. The, the penalty kill especially is very different. It's basically like completely inverted in terms of where they're pressuring. They used to pressure really high up in the zone, and now they're kind of dropping back and they're, and they're really pressuring in the zone things like that. That's a difference. There's a difference in the breakout. If you watch really closely where the, the center kind of swings back through the zone and things like that. But, you know, I think really it was just more about getting the most out of a team that was supposed to be, you know, really good and kind of a favorite in the Pacific division to begin with. You know, it took a little bit, like I said, but, but I think they clicked, they made a couple deals. They got Alec Martinez in there. I think that solidified the blue line. Um, couple other you know little things that, that we'll kind of talk about we've got a whole lot of time <laughs> to uh to discuss but but yeah I think I think there were a few things that that you know maybe they just needed a kick in the butt and 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 that all sort of happened over the last month before the uh before the pause yeah you're right like this team was looking good going into the year I was surprised that they weren't like a strong team all the way through when I started looking at what happened throughout it's even more impressive by the way that they were winning so much at the end because they didn't have Mark Stone for that final stretch of the year he missed the final six games and Mark Stone is one of these players I find it so incredible they made it to the cup finals in 2017-18 that was without Mark Stone like they actually fully upgraded their second line following a year where they made it to the cup finals they exchanged Howla, Neil and Perron for Stasny, Stone, and Pacioretty. So that seems like a pretty nice upgrade. And while Pacioretty led the team in points this season, it was Mark Stone who had the highest point pace. His 63 points in 65 games, that was good for a 79-point 82 game pace and like I said his season got cut short at the end with a lower body injury cost him the final six games of the year I see you tweeted on June 12 saying that Stone has declared himself 100% healthy and ready to go so that's good to hear and yeah I'm curious to know like Mark Stone he seems like a maybe an underrated player like even though he put up a 79 point pace which is elite you don't hear people talk about him as like one of the great players in the league even though he's like amazing possession wise one of the best when it comes to takeaways and not having giveaways so would it be hyper believe for me to say that stone might be one of the more underrated players in the league like i feel like uh bergeron and kopitar always brought up examples of some of the best two-way players but i feel like stone should be in that conversation yeah i think he started to get a little bit of that that publicity and and recognition last year i think he was second in the selkie and and obviously like the takeaways are, are sort of the stat that everybody points to with him in in some ways maybe the the knock on him is that he's not a center you know, all the guys that you kind of mentioned are centers, Bergeron, Kopitar. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be a voter on uh, the Selkie Award and things like that. And, and, you know, Couturier, guys that you always look for, Ryan O'Reilly, they're all centers. And, and Mark Stone, especially last year, was kind of the outlier a little bit in that. And, and I definitely think he got the recognition. But, you know, maybe playing in Ottawa, maybe, you know, maybe having good seasons, but, but maybe modest point totals until last year. You know, he'd never been over the 70-point mark. 
So I think it's more that he's kind of coming into his own. He's a little bit of a late bloomer. I mean, even going back to juniors and things like that, he wasn't a high draft pick. I mean, he was like a sixth round pick. He took a little bit to kind of, you know, come into his own. Once he got to Ottawa, obviously he emerged pretty quickly. But, you know, it's sort of the trajectory maybe that he's been on his whole career. He's not a guy that, you know, came in with a whole bunch of buzz and 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 had it right from the start. He's kind of earned it all the way along and, and things like that. Maybe playing in a, I guess, quote unquote, smaller market like Ottawa, maybe going to Vegas, being a guy who gets, a you know, an eight-year deal, a $9.5 million AAV, and all those sorts of things will, will sort of add to it. I think the things, to be quite honest, that really will will boost his stock and started to really, you know, give him more of a, a name recognition, I guess you could say, was, you know, playing for Team Canada, representing them in the World Championships, doing well, doing in front of his country. And, you know, maybe with this new CBA and things like that, if he's if he's still healthy and going toward, you know, 2022 and he's able to uh, play for Team Canada you know, then maybe, maybe that's when he'll really explode and, and people will see how good he is. Yeah. And I guess you're right. Maybe this is like even an outdated question by me because he did come second in that Selkie voting. That's cool that you got to vote for it. So I assume Vegas is happy with this acquisition. They traded this uh, prospect defenseman Brandstrom to get him, but uh, Stone has been like as good as he could have been, maybe even, even better. So I'd imagine the team's very happy to have him even with that big contract also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that's been interesting to, to see around here, to kind of hear around around here, they have never named a captain. From from day one, they've kind of always been a team that's held this 23 captains mantra and things like that. Nobody's worn a seat, but it sort of feels like, you know, maybe everybody's waiting for Mark Stone to just kind of grab a hold of this team. And maybe at some point, he's the guy who emerges as, as a potential captain and, and the guy who wears a C going forward, he's got a long contract. They committed to him in that regard. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Obviously that's something that, you know, Pete DeBoer has talked about a little bit. Kelly McCream, the GM has talked about a little bit more and, and maybe that's because they have somebody on the roster like Mark Stone that, that fits a little bit of that, you know, captain mold. Yeah, I didn't even realize that Vegas didn't have a captain. It definitely does seem like Mark Stone would fit in. Either guess, I guess either him or maybe Max Pacioretty because he's obviously a veteran in the league who's seen a lot of success. And unlike Mark Stone, I'd be lying if I said I expected Max Pacioretty to put up the season that he ended up having this year in 2019-20. Like he had been a solid bet for 30-40 goals, like 60 to 70 points for the Habs year in, year out. But then Patches had a down year in Montreal in 2017-18. He only had 37 points in 64 games that year. He ends up getting traded to Vegas in the summer of 2018 for a very substantial package, Thomas Tatar, Nick Suzuki, and a high pick. And unfortunately for George McPhee at the time, it didn't seem like the big bet on Pacioretty was lo- it wasn't looking like it was working out. It looked like a bit of a whiff at the start. He only managed two points in his first 14 games as a Golden Knight. But then he, he turned things around. He uh, put up a 60-point pace the rest of the way in that season, 2018-19. Ended up with 40 points in 66 games for a 50-point, 82-game pace. So could have been a lot worse. But like going into this season, my co-host Brian and I, we felt 
like comfortable pegging him for a slight improvement over his 50 point pace from last year, but nothing major. It seemed like Pacioretty's biggest seasons were behind him, but of course we were dead wrong. Pacioretty ended up putting up one of his best ever seasons this past year, 32 goals, 66 points in 71 games. It's a 76 point pace along with a career high 307 shots, which was third in the entire league behind only McKinnon and Ovechkin. So do you have any sense of what changed in Pacioretty's game for him to go from looking like he was maybe starting to decline to producing as well as he ever has as a 31 year old? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of with, with you in terms of, I didn't expect this. I, I expected mm-hmm. a bounce back and to some extent, you know, he and I had a conversation at the all-star game. He was voted and I don't remember the exact wording on this, but it was kind of like third for like comeback player of the year or something like that at the midway point. And what was funny was he kind of took it as a backhanded compliment, almost like, well, I didn't think I had that bad of a year last year. <laughs> you know, he scored 22 goals. And like you said, he, you know, it was like a 40, 50 point pace. If, if you put it all out there, if he was healthy all, all the way, certainly not what he had done, but to like call it a comeback, I think he, he felt, you know, maybe a little bit insulted and, and all that. I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I don't think anybody saw, you know, what he's, I mean, this is a career season. He got hurt right, right before the pause and he's going to end up, I think it's like one point short of his career high, if I remember right. But all that being said, and, and to answer your question, I think a lot of it has to do with health. And if you go back to Montreal, he was hurt at the end of his time there. And most of that summer he had spent on the shelf. He wasn't able to skate. And I think he, you know, have the trade come in right before training camp in September. He has to move his family and do all that kind of stuff, you know, get ready for the season. And I don't know that he was fully healthy. And, and it was funny because he got hurt in December. And that may have been this weird blessing in the skies because he, he like bumped knees and he was out for a couple of weeks, but I think it let him just get everything healthy. And from that point on, from that, you know, stretch at the end of last year, into the playoffs, and then all through this year, he's been, you know, the guy that the Golden Knights thought they were acquiring and, and gave, you know, a $7 million, you know, dollar a year contract to. It, that first year, that was, a, you know, starting to look like a lopsided trade. I mean, Tatar had a really good year in Montreal, and obviously this year Nick Suzuki is – Emerge is a really good prospect, but it's evened out. The Golden Knights, you know, they they got this year what they what they were expecting, and and if he can stay healthy going forward, I I, I don't know that I would expect thirty five goals, but yeah, maybe he threatens between twenty five and thirty, and and that I, the the one thing with Max Pacioretty and people talk about the, his shot. If you ever see him in person, his shot, his release is ridiculous. It just comes off his stick different. It, it's a snapshot that looks like, you know, the, the mile per hour is on it. It looks like he's winding up and whatever, but he has like no backswing to it. And, you know, it, it throws goalies off. It is so hard to pick up through goalies and things like that. Alex Tuck says it's the best shot, best release in the league. I'm sure you could get some argument from people, you know. Probably some Austin Matthews fans out there, right. things like that. But but that's the one thing that that Max Pacioretty has that's elite. And if he's healthy, and and he's doing that, yeah, he can threaten thirty goals. And and just because we have time, I'll talk about this too. 
one of the things the Golden Knights did this year was put Max Pacioretty on the right side on the power play, his off wing, on the half wall, like in that right face-off circle. And he had never been in that spot before in Montreal. He said he's always played kind of that bumper, that middle spot. And he said he regretted never bringing it up in Montreal because now that he's played that spot, he said that's where he needs to be. That's that's his home on a power play. And I do think that's another area where, you know, you look at the production and, and the increase and, and that might be why. Yeah. That's actually very interesting. I've never really noticed, but Pacioretty for all those years where he was a superstar on the halves, he never put up more than 17 power play points. I'm saying this year was a career high for him in power play points with 19, which is still not even that high compared to like the top players in the league, like uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl were both above 40. So even if uh, Pacioretty starts to regress even strength, imagine if he could just even moderately increase his power play point production and he could definitely be up to a point per game player. I mean, it's, you know, you're, when you're looking at things like fantasy and just working and find production and, you know, sneaky little unexpected things. Yeah. I, he, he fits on that spot. He's on a number one power play and he's featured. So with Mark Stone and, and, you know, the other sneaky one is when they get Cody Glass back and I'm sure we'll talk about him later on, but you know, he's another guy that he was such a quarterback and, you know, if he's there and Max Pacioretty's on the ice, it's a combination you look for. It's, it, it's work. They have some kind of chemistry. They've found it in training camp and, and some early season games. So just something to kind of look for, you know, down the road, really. Yeah, it's like very exciting because I feel like with Patch already, he might still be a little bit underrated just because, you know, if someone looks and sees, okay, yeah, he had 66 points this year, but his last couple of years were really bad. So averaging it out, he still is probably on the decline, but you're giving lots of reasons to expect for him to be able to keep this up moving forward. And you're right, just playing with a superstar like Mark Stone obviously is going to help him to make sure he doesn't fall too far. And yeah, and if you say he has this amazing shot, well, he took 307 of them this year. So with a strong <laughs> shot and throwing it so many, so many times, yeah, you're going to expect a lot of goals to happen. So very good for the Golden Knights. And yeah, I guess it's probably the debate is still open about whether they won or lost that trade because Nick Suzuki had a great rookie season and Tatar obviously is bounced back after, wasn't he like benched for playoff games when he was in Vegas? What happened with Tatar? Yeah, yeah, you know, Tatar, it was a weird thing. I don't, know that i've ever gotten the full story on it but it just never clicked whether it was on ice off ice he just kind of never really found a role they sort of shoehorn him in on like the third line and never really found chemistry with anybody and they sort of tried him at times on you know in the top six um riley smith got banged up a little bit that year and and it gave tatar a run and he just never really clicked with anybody and then you know that that was it was a weird that was a weird locker room, and, and I don't, I, weird is probably not the right word. Tight-knit is, is probably the better word. And to have somebody come in at that point in the season at the deadline with all the success they had, I think was just, you know, maybe maybe that was a difficult thing for, for anybody short of, like, you know, Wayne Gretzky or somebody coming into that locker. They just had such a special thing going right then that anybody that they, you know, were adding to it, it, it just it just had to click right away, and it didn't for him. So you know they 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 moved on, and they felt like you know they they felt like they had to upgrade that second line. You mentioned it, you know, early on they they completely rotated over between Hal and Neil and and Perron, and you know Patch was was at least part of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely seemed like they really got a better end of that deal in terms of the present time with the, how Tatar was looking. And yeah, so he turned it around to Montreal. That's good. It's nice if both teams can have a win there. And if Vegas obviously goes on to win a, a cup in the next couple of years, and I'm sure they won't be complaining. And we'll talk about if we think they can do it. But so moving on from Stone and Pacioretty, uh, on the flip side, Vegas's longtime top line trio of Marcia So, William Carlson, and Riley Smith they all had their career years in Vegas's inaugural season. Like in that 2017-18 miracle season, Marcia So was near a point per game. William Carlson scored those 43 goals with that wild 23.4 uh, shooting percentage. Riley Smith put up 60 points in 67 games. That was an over 70 point pace. Since then, all three have dipped back down to like around 60 point paces in the subsequent two seasons. And, you know, that's solid production, right? Picking up a point in three of every four games is great. Well above what all three were producing before they came to Vegas, that's for sure. But definitely a tier or two below what they did in that first expansion year. So do you think at this point, is it fair to assume that this is the production we should be expecting from Marcia So, Carlson and Riley Smith moving forward during their tenure with the Golden Knights? Or is there like one, say, of the three that you could see as most likely to maybe get back to what they did in that 2017-18 season? I don't know that any of them are going to get close to that first season other than maybe like what Riley Smith did, just because he seems to be pretty close and pretty consistent all three years in terms of production. But I don't know if March or so is going to get to, you know, like a 75 point season. And I don't know if Carlson's ever going to obviously score 43 goals um, or get to like a 78 point season. But I could also see both of those guys maybe having a slight tick up from from where they're at. They're they're both, you know, Carlson especially. If if he's able to find a little bit more of a, of a shooting touch, the assists are there. You know, I mean, if he's a if he turns into a twenty five goal, you know, thirty five assist guy, I don't think that's out of the question. Um, I don't think it's out of the question for Marcheso to you know, get to 60, 65 points, you know, approach, approach something like that. But I don't know that either of them really, it's fair to, to project them, I guess, as a point per player, you know, game. I, I, I think that first year just, it, it, it snowballed, it, it clicked. And, and obviously Carlson with, with everything he touched and seemed to find twine. It, right. it just, you know, it beat a goalie no matter what <laughs> between the legs or, or, or anything like that. So I, I do think, I do think that, that, you know, March or so Carlson guys like that have value. And I think, you know, maybe you can project a little bit of a tick, but I don't know that you can ever really expect, you know, if you're going to make like a fantasy lineup to, to have those guys and say, all right, I got a 40 goal score in William Carlson. That's just probably expecting too much at this point. Yeah, especially because I've noticed Carlson's shooting has gone down since that first year. Like he had that high shooting percentage when he scored 43 goals, but he did take 184 shots. Then the following year, he went down to 169. I guess this year he was also pacing for around 160 or what? Or I I guess he was shooting a bit more. It's just like that that was so wild that he was able to score so many goals when normally he's not even such a big shooter. Uh, But I'm curious to know also those three that played on the same line for so long 
with the previous coach, they ended up getting split up at the end of the 2019-20 season. Like new coach Pete DeBoer split them up down the stretch. Carlson got swapped with Paul Stasny and Stasny was centering Marsh Stone Smith. And then Carlson was moved to center Pacioretty and Stone and then Nicholas Roy instead of Stone when Stone got hurt. Uh, What do you think triggered DeBoer to switch things up after this line has been so successful for so long? I think part of it, part of it was injury. So William Carlson got hurt in Buffalo, the last game of Jory Gallant's coaching career. So when Pete DeBoer came aboard, ha ha, um, <laughs> he didn't have William Carlson. I, th- I want to say it was for eight games, but that, I, I don't know if that number is exactly right. Whatever it was, it was a stretch of time. And so he kind of moved guys around. And then when William Carlson came in, it just kind of worked out, you know, that, that that was where he slotted in. And, and I think Pete DeBoer said, you know, he's not married to any of the combinations, obviously that had worked or not worked before that, you know, it it was about what was, you know, going to find chemistry at that point. And, and to some extent, I also think he, he clearly saw the, the combination of Pacioretty and Stone with whichever center as the number one line. And I think he saw William Carlson as the number one center. Oh, I see. And so if you're going to kind of do that and experiment and, and kind of ultimately go that way, I think it sort of evolved to where that was the number one line. And, and I don't, you know, you could argue, I think more than anything, Patrick and Stone are the two that have that showed at least, especially on paper, you look at some analytics and things like that, their chemistry, you know, they're coursey, they're, they're, you know, expected goals for and, and goals for goals against all, all those sorts of things are pretty much ridiculous, regardless of who's playing center. But, you know, I think the way the lineup kind of slotted and, and the way it worked sort of at the end, you know, we, Pete DeBoer felt William Carlson was, was the guy. And I think maybe the, the, the good thing or the, the, you know, the flexibility, the the nice thing that he has as a coach is to be able to, you know, go to a different, you know, top six center that he can go back to Paul Stastny if, if he has to. He knows that that Marcheseau, Carlson and Smith have a built in chemistry. And so if you need to shake things up, if things aren't working, then that's a line combination you can always kind of fall back on, I guess. Right. But I guess it is interesting that the way you say it, that Carlson, if he's a top line center and then Stone and Pacioretty are the top line wingers, then it makes sense to put them together. And, you know, I'm taking a look now after Carlson came back from that injury, he had 12 points in his final 14 games, obviously highlighted by a hat trick versus Anaheim. So I wonder if maybe that's a reason to expect more from Carlson moving forward, if he's going to have this upgrade in wingers potentially next year, unless things obviously switch back. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what will be interesting to see is how they play kind of starting fresh in, in this postseason, And if that's the line, in fact, that Pete DeBoer does go with, I, I, I would expect him to go with that. I don't know why he wouldn't. That seemed to be, you know, all things being equal, the combination that he preferred, you know, when everybody was healthy and, and they were, you know, on a roll. So I, I would assume that that's where he would start. And if they play well, yeah, going into next season, that that's definitely something to look at. 
Yeah, and I guess it's like good news for William Carlson. And also, you know, it was good news for Paul Stasny to get on that line with Marsha Soen Smith because as of January 1st, before getting into that configuration, Stasny was in the midst of one of his worst ever seasons offensively. He only managed 16 points through his first 43 games. That's a 30-point pace if it would have continued that way all throughout an 82-game season. And this included a stretch where he was bumped from the top six completely. Cody Glass got a run on the stone patch already line early on. And obviously, we'll talk about Glass in a minute. Uh, but then, yeah, the new year, new coach brought back the Stastny we've grown accustomed to as, as things went much better in 2020. He put up 22 points in his final 28 games to make his season total look a bit more respectable, uh, though his 44-point pace in the end was the lowest of his career. But but uh, yeah, what do you think was going on with Stasny that caused him to start so slow for that first half of the season, like after being such a consistent producer ever since he got to Vegas and even beforehand in St. Louis? Yeah, I, so this is where, you know, I don't, I, I have a hard time because I don't want to be too rough. But at the same time, you know, you have to look at it, maybe the age and you have to look to look at how much tread maybe is still left on those tires, I guess. The, the one thing that he did talk about at one point during the season was that he was maybe not fully healthy to begin with, that he was overcoming an injury from the summer and, and still working his way back. And so maybe that had something to do with it, but it was clear, like, like you pointed out statistically, but you know, especially just watching it, he was not affecting games for the first few months. And, and whether he was a half step behind or, or just something wasn't clicking, whatever it was, Part I don't want to I don't want to put this entirely on him, but you pay six point five million a year for a guy you expect a certain amount of production. For and sure, they were struggling at the start of the year, and, and offensively was part of it. And you know you have to look to Paul Stasny as at least you know a, a part of the reason for those struggles and, and things. And yeah, he got it turned around. Um, I guess the harsh thing is you know, if we're going to talk about stuff like salary cap and, and all those sorts of things, with, which are reality in the NHL right now, you know, it looks like that salary cap is going to stay at 81.5 million for at least next year. And, and maybe the, the season after that. So somebody like Paul Stasny, who's got a pretty big contract, obviously makes more than somebody like William Carlson, let's just say, you know, maybe he becomes vulnerable on, you know, on an off season and things like that, if they have to clear salary, um, they've got guys like Cody glass waiting in the wings. There's guys, you know, further down the pipeline. If we're going to look at like Peyton Krebs and, and uh, one of the things that was interesting this year was after they traded for Chandler Stevenson and the way that he emerged and he was a, he was an acquisition in early December and he played with, Stone and Patch ready at points and was producing it, you know, at least career numbers close to like, you know, in, in his 41 games, he has 22 points with the Knights. I mean, that's like, you know, more than he had in his entire career, you know, up until then. So they may have hit, they may have hit on something. His emergence obviously allowed them to make Cody Eakin expendable and, and suddenly like when you thought they maybe didn't have some depth at center, now all of a sudden maybe they have a little more depth at center than than folks originally thought. And maybe that makes somebody like Paul Stasny, you know, a little bit more expendable if they, you know, try to keep Robin Leonard in the offseason or, 
you know, make a big run at like, you know, there's there was talk at least at one point of like Alex Petrangelo. Oh wow! If he hit free agency, you know, maybe the Knights would be interested or or to make a run at him. Obviously, this this makes it tougher with the salary cap staying where it is. But if you're gonna look at somebody who might be vulnerable in that regard, maybe Stasny is the guy. And and I think production and and age are are just you know sort of the reality in in all of this. Yeah, it's almost like then for this playoff run, if it happens, you know, Stastny does really well, that would make him easier to trade, obviously, because he did have that slow stretch this season, which may have other teams being wary of giving him all that money for a 35-year-old player. But on the other hand, I guess if he has a good playoffs, then it's going to be harder to trade him because he's going to be considered part of the core of the team. I never considered the possibility that Stasny would get traded. I assumed he would just play out the rest of his contract. And then, you know, that would be the time when guys like glass and Krebs maybe would be ready to step forward. But it's also a good point about Chandler Stevenson. He was always like there whenever someone got injured, it was Stevenson that took their spot in the top six. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if he can replicate that. And, you know, maybe Paul Stasny just needed to get a little healthy and maybe he has a huge playoffs. And, and then all of a sudden he, he shows that he's got some, something left. Maybe he can be, you know, a 50 to 60 point guy again. I don't know. That's a tough projection for me to make at this point. I mean, just you're looking at age, you're kind of looking at, you know, what's sort of the norm for, for guys when they get to, you know, what is he, I think 34, um, you know, you're naturally going to slow down. It's, it's, he's a great player, but you know, it's really the elite ones that, that, do it for as long as they do. It, it's just kind of natural. Father time catches up with, with everybody. So it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what sort of production, you know, they can get with him in the playoffs. And, and, and maybe that helps with, with projecting his value for, for next season. And, and if he's a guy that sticks in Vegas and, and stays in the top six, then you know, he's going to have good line mates. If he's bouncing down around the lineup, he's maybe playing third line minutes, which he did you know, at different points in this season. And maybe he's the guy that you're not going to be able to rely on for, for fantasy lineup. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, he was basically doing nothing for that first stretch, but then it did seem like he had some chemistry with Marsh, so and Smith. So it'll be interesting to see if he sticks with them and if he could continue, because he was putting up basically like a 60 point pace while he was with those guys. Uh, though, of course, the person who would be most likely to rain on Stasny's parade next season in terms of offensive upside has got to be Cody Glass, the 2017 sixth overall pick who had a really nice start to the season. He had six points in his first nine games. Like we discussed, he bumped Stasny from that stone and pet ready line uh but that success didn't last for glass he ended up having what looked like a pretty tough rookie season he only managed six more points in his final 30 games that he played but interspersed with that he missed time with a knee injury he ended up getting demoted to the minors and he aggravated that knee injury i read in the ahl all-star game which led him to have season ending surgery at the start of march so actually before even digging into glass's play for those 39 games that he did have with the golden knights is there any update on how his injury recovery is going? Like, do we know if we should expect him to be fully healed by the next time the Golden Knights, but I guess not for this upcoming playoffs, but at least for next year? Yeah, when we got the update from Kelly McCrimmon a few weeks ago, Cody Glass will not be available for, you know, like the postseason tournament coming up, the return to play and all of that. But he should be 100% and fully healed for next season, especially if they're you know, expected to start in like December or maybe even January. 
and he would he would expect to be fully healed. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's pretty serious knee injury. I don't think it was anything like a you know a sprain. If we're you know we never got an official word, but you know all indications were it was an ACL. And if you if you watch the video, it's pretty clear the way it like bends and, and things like that. The ACL is probably what came into it. So you know it was going to take a few months and, and things like that. But he should be back, which. You know, again, not to belabor the point, but, you know, he's going to factor in at, at center in terms of depth with all those guys, Stasny, you know, Stevenson, at very signed Cousins, Nick Waugh, like, you know, they're suddenly pretty deep there. Yeah, this team, I don't know. They, I thought expansion teams were supposed to be bad. I grew up in Ottawa. It took a long time <laughs> for things to start turning around, but I guess Vegas just gets all these good centers right away. Yeah, rigged. It's rigged, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like online poker, it's rigged. Right, yeah. Well, oh, but you cover poker, so you can tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love, I love making the jokes about online poker, though, so. That's funny. Well, hey, a lot of people thought that things were rigged when that uh, penalty cost them that playoff series against San Jose, though. I always would retort saying, you know, what kind of team lets in four shorthanded goals on one on one power play? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I it, It's kind of funny. Like, I was thinking back, um, you know, thinking, you know, for stuff for this and whatever, you know, the story that I, that I've told about that is, so they scored the first goal and I usually, my, my routine is to go down or, you know, at, at some point in the third period down in the media room and make sure that I'm down there, finish my story and then get closer to the locker room and all that. So as I was going down, they scored the second goal and I kind of got down there and I walked into the, to the media room and I sort of mumbled something out loud about how I thought it was a BS penalty. I always think back on it now, how everybody must think I was like just this complete homer, like, you know, all the biggest reporters, like, you know, oh, you know, it's not a penalty and whatever. And, you know, and I just remember like seeing the replay though and going, oh my gosh, if this cost them. And then it just kept, you know, like kept happening. And I saw the third goal and then I saw the fourth goal and I'm like, unreal. Like, and the one thing, though, is that you knew as it was happening that that was like a historic moment. That was going to be something that everybody remembered in hockey 20, 50, you know, maybe even 100 years from now. They're, they're going to talk about that play. Yeah, it's true. So, hey, that's uh, one thing to hang their hat on. Then I was actually uh, taking a flight somewhere the next day and they were replaying that game in the, in the airport. And it was, uh, it was wild to just watch that third period again, knowing what was going to happen. <laughs> okay, we were talking about uh, Cody Glass. I did want to ask you, when he was yeah. healthy for that stretch, I don't know how healthy he was. I guess you could inform me on that. Like, how do you think he looked in his first season in the big, big leagues? Like, do you think he'll have a chance to once again break into the top six next season, but this time for a longer stretch? Or do you think he'll need to accumulate some more experience before he could land a spot with Stone or Marsh or so and bump someone like a Paul Stasny? Yeah, so it's hard to say. So here's the thing I always try to remind myself and, and others with Cody Glass is like how young he is. And I think there's this, uh, you know, there's, there's this, this habit people have or, or whatever you want to call it to, to like rush everybody. And you, see, and you say, oh, he was picked sixth overall. That means he's got to arrive in the NHL by this time. He's got to, you know, produce this because this guy did and this guy did. And I think it's it's such a disservice sometimes to guys in their development that, you know, they get there at a different rate. And, and maybe it's going to take Cody Glass a little bit to, you know, physically get that weight on. 
and, and be a guy who can hold up for 82 games and, and things like that. It, it, I don't know what his impact can be next year. It'll be interesting to see, you know, obviously since the season was paused and we haven't been around the players, we don't, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen what he looks like and how he's used the rehab maybe to his advantage and, and to strengthen all parts of his body. Uh, because that's the one area that, that really you can just look at right from the start and just say he's just got to continue to keep getting stronger and, and you know, put put those pounds on, really. Um, it might take a little bit. I don't know. It, the thing that I, you know, I never tried to assume that I'm smarter or pretend that I'm smarter than, you know, Kelly McCrimmon and George McPhee and, and their staff and, and the folks that, that actually do this for a living. So I don't know where they project Cody Glass and, and like, you know, Paul Stasny in terms of the conversation that we had earlier. And, and is he ready to step in? Does does that make Paul Stasny expendable? Because, you know, they have Cody Glass ready. They have Chandler Stevenson who can step in and maybe Cody Glass can play on the third line. I, that's what's hard for me to read in, in terms of, you know, getting in the mind of, the Golden Knights front office and what is their thinking. But I think it's fair to project that maybe at least at the end of Paul Stasen's contract, which would be after next season, that Cody Lass would be expected to kind of jump in and be ready at that point. You know, maybe that's the fair, you know, projection to say, okay, when can he take over, you know, as a top six guy? You know, maybe after next season, and if he gets there before that, you know, then, then you know, good on him. And, and obviously, maybe the, the Golden Knights have, have a player there, and, and maybe he's a guy for fantasy, you, you know, that you can keep an eye on. I think the one thing, if Cody Glass gets run on the power play, that's where he can be especially effective and, and maybe provide some points. He... He has a spot on that on that goal line and on that half wall where he really likes to to, to you know settle and, and quarterback and create. And the Golden Knights don't really have anybody else who can do that. It's the one trait that he has right now. And and Jared Gallant early in the year tried to take advantage of it and utilize them there. And that's where he had his most success. It wasn't necessarily five on five. Early on, that Cody Glass was producing. He was on that power play. So, if he's able to, you know, find a home there and and continue his development, you know, maybe I think it's fair for twenty one twenty two to to look at Cody Glass and say, you know, maybe he's you know ready for like a fifty point season or somewhere along those lines. Right. So, reading between the lines, it sounds like you're saying. You didn't see enough to indicate that he's like ready to be a star just yet, but he's still young and maybe in a couple of years, that's when he'll get his opportunity and that's when you're expecting maybe something to happen. I think that's fair. And, and I just think, you know, the other thing too, factoring all this is the injury. You know, it, it's a serious knee injury that, that he's coming back from. And, you know, obviously medicine is different than even like when, when I was like his age and things like that, 20 you know, 25 years ago and, and what I'm kind of mumbling my age. <laughs> um, you know, so, so it's not like he can't come back. It's not like he shouldn't come back. But, but I do think it's, it's we have to be fair to him and, and say that, that that's something that, that he's got to overcome. And it, it's going to, 
it's going to take time, and, and maybe that that is something that slows you know his development just a little bit. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Like we were just talking about how maybe Stasny and Pacioretty were being affected a bit by injuries. So it's also obviously reasonable to expect a young kid like uh, Glass. It might take him a little while to get back up to speed. Uh, I guess moving on, another player that looks to have a lot of promise but may be suffering like from this team just being way too deep is the uh, 18th overall pick from 2014, Alex Tuck. Uh, because he had that like fantastic sophomore season in 2018-19 where he got a long look on the second line with Pacioretty. It's always all, this is like the consistent through line here, I guess. It's like when you get a chance to play with Pacioretty or Stone or someone, then you're going to do well. Uh, but like Tuck got that run uh, before eventually getting pushed down the lineup when Stone was acquired. And people may not remember, but Tuck actually sat with 33 points through 37 games in 2018-19. So he was looking like a breakout star before he ended up getting demoted and then cooled off at the end. And then unfortunately, this past season, 2019-20, was a continuation of the second half of the previous season for Tuck as he found himself again on the third line most of the way, and he only managed 17 points in 42 games. Uh, Also, injury is a theme here. He missed significant time with a leg injury, which I'd imagine didn't help. So I guess kind of similar to my question about Glass, like first of all, how is Tuck doing health-wise? And then second of all, like do you think that the depth of the Vegas roster will keep him from like being able to repeat the numbers that he put up before because it's just going to be so tough for him to get into the top six. Yeah, first off, in terms of the health, he should be fine. We, you know, we expect and we had heard from Pete DeBoer and Kelly McCrim that he's 100%. So I don't think that's an issue, at least going into the postseason and all of that. The Golden Knights have been pretty stingy, at least so far, and we're at least seeing the names of the guys who are participating in Phase 2. They've only released, I think, like 12 names, and I don't think Tuck is one of them, but that doesn't mean that he's not participating because our understanding is that almost the entire team, if not the whole team, has been you know, in Vegas and participating in that. So he should be fine. As far as Tuck, like he, I, I could do an hour and a half just on Tuck. Like, wow. I, well, this whole thing, because this whole situation is fascinating to me. Because I think you hit the nail on the head. And what people forget is that at the trade deadline last year, Alex Tuck was the Golden Knights leading scorer. And he absolutely 100%, like you said, was having a breakout year and looked like, you know, emerging star. And they gave him a, a big contract, you know, just short of $5 million a year for, for seven years. And, and it looked like they had just absolutely robbed the Minnesota Wild, you know, to get him. And then all of a sudden, like you said, they, they trade for Mark Stone and there's not room in the top six for him. He bumps down to the third line and the production dips and he gets hurt. And then this year he just, you know, it was like stop start kind of the whole way he got hurt right at the end of preseason and missed the first few games and, you know, just came back and, and it, it never really hit for him. Um, but it's so interesting because, you know, in, in terms of an expansion team, he's maybe the one guy that they have that you could look at as like a young sort of prospectish, still emerging forward that might be, you know, a, a, an expendable, you know, valuable trade chip. Um, I look at, so like the guys in Toronto that always seem to get mentioned, like Kapanen and, and Johansson, and, you know, these young guys that, that they're just not room for, but if they went somewhere else, they can emerge. And, and that's, you know, the, the chip that Kyle Dubas can play and, and maybe use. 
Tuck is like the, the closest thing the Golden Knights have to something like that. That if they're going to make like a bigger deal, I think one of the things that I've been wondering about or suspicious about is, is if they try to do something at goaltender, you know, if they can't afford to keep Robin Leonard, um, maybe they look elsewhere and, and maybe they look at a younger guy, you know, Thatcher Demko's name has been mentioned. I don't know why they wouldn't look at like Gorgiev with the Rangers. If the Rangers have to move one of those guys, um, it seems like a situation that, that the Knights might look at, you know, and, and to me, if I'm going to try to put a trade together or something like that, and I'm a scout for another team and I look up and down that roster and like, you know, who on the Golden Knights would interest me if I'm, you know, another team, Alex Tuck's name would be, if not at the top of the list, like very near it, because I don't think, I don't think anybody should give up on him. I think he's he's closer to the guy that we saw last year than we saw this year. And I think if he just gets a chance and some confidence and, you know, a little bit of, of mojo, I guess, you know, whatever whatever that is, I think he can be a guy that that is, you know, a consistent 20 to 25 goal scorer and, you know, maybe in that 50 to 60 point range. I I, I think that's that's his ceiling, and, and he's shown he can get close to it. So I don't know if he's going to get a chance with the Knights without injury. That's the most interesting thing right now. Yeah, I guess it's just like a nice problem for this team to have. If they have this player that you're saying is capable of being like a 60-point guy, and they just don't have room for him because they're just too good. And so, yeah, I guess it would make a lot of sense if they can find another team that's interested and then fill a need that they have in net, which I definitely want to get to before we're done here. I saw you wrote an article just today about Robin Leonard unveiling his newest Golden Knights-themed pads. So doesn't that mean that he for sure is going to want to come to Vegas and maybe we'll give them a discount? Yeah, totally right. Absolutely. He's got the pads. He's ready to go. Like, yeah, it's gotta be, gotta be. I mean, that's the, that's probably the biggest question for them in all seriousness. Um, once it gets to the off season, you know, they've got Chandler Stevenson, Nick Cousins, who are RFAs. Um, but Robin Leonard is really the big UFA and the one that, you know, would probably cost the most. I mean, clearly of the, of the ones that I mentioned, he would command, you know, probably in, in, in the neighborhood of like $6 million a year. Um, you know, if somebody's going to commit to him long term for the last, you know, what this will be his fourth straight year of going to free agency. So I'm sure at this point, he's just more interested in, in a long term contract. Yeah, for sure. Um, so so it, it'll just be interesting, you know, with that salary cap staying where it is, if the Knights are able to afford him. And then if they're not, how do you know, what direction do they go? Because they traded Malcolm Subban and they made the decision. If no, if nothing else, they made the decision at that point. We're going a different way with the future of our, of our goaltending, and they've got Mark Andre Fleury locked up. But you know, at one point they thought or said, and and you know, were grooming Malcolm Subban to be the heir apparent, and they clearly gave up on that idea. They've got to start over because there's really. You know, not anybody in the pipeline, at least, that's proven that he's ready to take over, you know, at least, you know, the next coming season and, and challenge Marc-Andre Fleury. So whether it's a trade or a free agent acquisition or maneuvering the roster to keep Robin Leonard, they're going to have to do something at that spot. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So we might as well just keep talking about the goalies. And I did see that they signed Oscar Danks recently, but I assume that's more for like their minor league teams. He's not someone that we should be considering as an option for them. I mean, that's how I look at it. It's a two-way deal. And, you know, maybe, maybe money forces them to look at him as the backup and, and give him a look. Uh, he got a game last year. Uh, he was kind of the first call up whenever they needed somebody. Um, it seemed ahead of Garrett Sparks. So, you know, maybe that's an option, but, you know, I think Oscar Dansk is, is proven more to be an AHL goaltender at this point yeah. in his career than, you know, an NHL backup even. So, you know, that, that might be a strong projection for him. I, I would think they would, they would look somewhere else, whether, whether it's trade or, or free agency or, or, you know, even on the roster and letter. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So uh, just to put a button on it, like, so Marc-Andre Fleury, who's been, he's been the main goalie since the team was established. He had that amazing inaugural season where he had the 927 save percentage, but then he's steadily regressed. He managed only a 913 save percentage in 2018-19 and then fell again to 905 this past season. And I imagine his struggles were what caused McCrimmon to trade for Robin Leonard at the trade deadline. And Leonard, like you said, or like we've discussed, like he's been phenomenal. Like since he left the Sabres, he had that Vesna nominated 930 save percentage season with the Islanders last year at a 918 save percentage this past season with Chicago, which was maybe even more impressive when you consider the Chicago D that he was working with. Then he had three, only three games in Vegas before the pause, but you know, one of them was a shutout against New Jersey. He was looking really good. So like, what is the thought on Flurry at this point? Like if they can't get someone like Leonard, it sounds like you're saying they would be very interested in getting him. And, but if they did, like, would that be to be the starter? Like are, is Vegas looking to transition Flurry into being more of a backup because they're not happy with how he's been playing lately? Or what's your take right now on how Flurry fits in with the organization? I mean, at this point, I would say he's still the number one guy. I don't know. It's, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that they're unhappy with him or anything like that. I think what was clear at the trade deadline was they were unhappy with the backup spot and just kind of the goaltending as a whole. They felt vulnerable, whether it was if Flurry struggled, you know, or got hurt, or even just, you know, maybe he wasn't, you know, a guy that they could fully rely on, that they just thought it needed to be shored up. And, and maybe, you know, that would spark, you know, Mark Andre Fleury and, and, and all of that. I don't know, um, but I think, you know, if nothing else, they still feel like he's their guy. I know the locker room still feels like Mark Andre Fleury, you know, is is the number one goaltender. And I would expect, you know, going into the postseason, unless something abs- you know absurd happens in the round robins and you know the exhibition game or something like that, I would expect Fleury to get the nod as the number one guy. Oh. It's interesting. Well, what'll be interesting is going forward though, and how short his leash is and whether Leonard gets in. And obviously everybody can imagine a scenario where maybe Marc-Andre Fleury struggles and Leonard gets in and then he leads them. Who knows? You know, maybe all the way. I don't know. I mean, can you imagine if Robin Leonard got in and and they won the cup with, with Leonard backstopping them? I mean, at that point, yeah, then all of a sudden you have a monumental decision if you're the front office and you have to decide, you know, in which direction are you going and who are you going to commit to? I think I think what's fair at this point is to just, you know, look at the numbers and you brought them up and statistically, Robin Leonard is a better goaltender at this point than Marc-Andre Fleury. Like, the numbers show that. So in terms of, like, could the Knights say, oh, look, Leonard's the guy and and we're going to try to go a different way with Flurry, whether that's, you know, a timeshare, 
or Leonard number one and, and Flurry backing up or trading Flurry or all those different scenarios. I mean, it's possible, sure. I mean, the one thing I've the one thing I've learned with all this is it's a business, and you know, anybody can get traded, and and nothing's you know nothing's really guaranteed. Everybody's sort of vulnerable, and in that sense, so. If the Knights at some point, you know, I think it would take the off season to evaluate it or to look at it and say, you know, we're going to, we're going to go with Robin Leonard. I mean, I don't think it would be the first time that, you know, a team looks at the goaltender and says, we think somebody's better. I mean, it wouldn't even be the first time that that happened to Marc-Andre Fleury, right? Like, I think, he was yeah, Matt Murray took over. That would be pretty there funny if now Leonard led them to a cup and Fleury, uh, Fleury once again was watching from the bench. Uh, but yeah, I also feel like I recall Leonard was expressing some displeasure when he was in Chicago, how uh, Corey Crawford kept on getting starts, even though he thought he was playing better. So I wonder if like if the golden knights are trying to curry favor with him they probably want to give him the first game but i guess you don't plan your playoff strategy around how you're going to sign unrestricted free agents but yeah it's a very interesting situation i mean i think they would risk losing the locker room to be quite honest if flurry uh, isn't isn't the the guy unless it's obvious unless like i said unless something happens and, and it's just clear like he's maybe not ready or or whatever I would expect Mark Andre Fleury to be ready. He's a complete, nutter, you know, consummate professional. So, like, he's going to be in shape and ready to go. But like, if he got hurt or or something, and, and behind the scenes everybody knew that maybe he wasn't a hundred percent, and you had to go the other way, okay. But I think all things being equal, Fleury's got to get the the first role. That makes sense. And also, maybe it's not fair to like look at him just in terms of his save percentage, because like you said, they didn't have a backup they could really rely on. So Fleury's been played hard, and maybe you know, he could have done better if he would have gotten more rest. Uh, one player I definitely need to ask you about, a lot of people have asked, because we've talked a lot about a lot of star players on the team, but we have a potential emerging superstar over on defense, because Shea Theodore finally had the breakout season that we've been waiting for after failing to pass the 40-point mark in the first few seasons of his career. Theodore burst through that barrier in 2019-20, put up 46 points in 71 games for a 53-point pace. And actually, that doesn't tell the whole story. Like, similar to Stasny, Theodore started off pretty mediocre. He only had 12 points through his first 34 games. But then from December 13th on, Theodore was like a different player. He ended the season with 34 points in his final 37 games. That's a 75-point pace during that stretch. Those 34 points starting on December 13th ranked him second among defensemen during that stretch behind only Roman Yosi. So this guy was like a star in the league for the second half of the year. And of course, this amazing run coincided with Pete DeBoer taking over as coach. And you could see that Theodore's ice time got bumped up to around 23 and a half minutes per game when it was closer to 21 and a half minutes for the first half of the season. So was it like a team system change that caused Theodore to turn him into a superstar halfway through the season? Or was it more that he just found another gear in his game? So I think it was a few things. And part of it, I think, is let's go back to last year in the world championships because what happened was he tested positive for um i think it was elevated levels of testosterone if, if i remember right so what ended up happening was that test triggered an examination and he was found to have testicular cancer so all he right. was, so he was treated for for all that and he recovered over the summer and it did set him back you know, obviously physically and, and just in terms of the hockey stuff and, you know, how he was able to prepare and get in shape. And then 
he got like a a muscle tweak or something, like a really minor injury um, at the very start of training camp, like during testing. So I think part of what happened was it just took him a little bit longer to kind of get up to like, you know, regular season speed. You know, for, for the first little bit, I think he was still kind of in, you know, training camp shape and he was getting through it. And then once he got into, I think, full shape, we really started to see it. And Jared Gallant started to kind of kind of take the reins off him a little bit. And we sort of saw that the offense begin to emerge. But when Pete DeBoer got here, and you mentioned the ice time, but along with the ice time is just sort of the system stuff. And one of the things that DeBoer did in terms of the breakout and, and things like that was emphasize the defenseman jumping up into the play and, and becoming, you know, like the fourth guy in the rush and things like that. That suited Shea Theodore so well. And just that emphasis and, and that freedom really – I think just just was exactly what he needed. That that was that was sort of the last, you know, the last step for him, I guess you could say, in in terms of, of, of his emergence. And you know, I still think there's more on the power play. I still think he he's got more in him in that and in, in production. But Pete DeBoer kind of made a joke one time. So he played, I think it was like 20-something minutes, like 28 minutes, just some ridiculous number in Montreal because they were chasing the game. From like the first period on and we asked him in Boston like the next you know the next day about it and he kind of joked about how that was the Eric Carlson Brent Burns rule that if they were chasing the game that if they were behind like Shea Theodore was going to be out there and he was logging minutes and he didn't care you know they were short in the bench and Shea Theodore was going to be one of the guys that they were leaning on and I think with Pete DeBoer going forward and and the system that they're going to use and the way that he views Jake Theodore, that, that, I mean, he's a total sleeper and he's a guy that, you know, I mean, if you're going to look at you, you know, if you're a guy that studies the NHL and you pay close attention to, you know who Shake Theodore is. But a lot of casual hockey fans maybe don't. It kind of reminds me of like, like where uh, um, Thomas Shabbat was last year, you know, like just sort of on the cusp and, and waiting to break out. And, and Shake Theodore feels like the guy that, that, all of a sudden is going to become the trendy Norris candidate. And, you know, the guy that, that people start to talk about. In the line. That's wild. Like uh, it seems like we've, from everything you're saying and the fact that he was, like I said, the second highest scoring defenseman for the second half of the season, like this might be the sleeper of next season. Cause I don't think in like fantasy drafts, people are going to be taking Shea Theodore second for a defenseman. Like, but he outpointed John Carlson for that stretch. He outpointed Quinn Hughes. So like, do you think that was, it sounds like you're saying you think that was for real? Like you think that potentially he's going to be among the Norris candidates and top scoring defenseman next year? I don't know. I mean, maybe not quite there, Uh, but I do think, but I do think like a 50 to maybe 60 point season out of him is completely within, you know, the realm of possibility. I don't, you know, Carlson was on pace for something ridiculous this year. And like, I don't know that Shea Theater is ever going to put up like Brent Burns numbers because right now he doesn't do as much in terms of production on the power play. I think that's the difference. That's where those guys log so many points. And, and you know, maybe that's where they separate themselves as, as offensive defensemen 
five on five, I think Shea Theodore is as good as, as any of those guys. And, and maybe if he can take the next step on the power play, you know, then, then yeah, I, you know, a 70 point season. I don't, I don't know that I see that. I'm not going to be the guy that's going to project that, but if you, you know, what was he on pace for, for this year? 53 points. Overall, it was a 53-point pace, but it was, like I said, like two very different stretches in the first right. half and second half. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely fair to expect that next year as a minimum, and, and you know, maybe he gets to 60, 65, sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but it, it's very exciting always when you have a player that's looking like he's primed for a breakout like Theodore was. And it was an interesting point you made about how, yeah, Pete DeBoer was coaching Burns and Carlson when they were like two of the highest scoring defensemen in the leagues. So uh, maybe uh, he knows how to bring these points out of defensemen. And emphasis too, he's going to want Shea Theodore to jump up in the play and be, and be active and do those sorts of things. And if he's going to consistently log, you know, 23, 24 minutes, you know, that's the other thing, too. He's just going to have more chances, really. Yeah, and uh, aside from Theodore, there's another defenseman on the team, so a lot like Burns and Carlson. Though obviously, this isn't now the comparison's starting to get a little thin. But uh, I really had my eye caught by Alec Martinez for his short run with the Golden Knights after they acquired him at the trade deadline from LA for a couple of picks. Martinez wasn't doing much of anything offensively for the Kings this past season, but once he got to Vegas, he put up multi-point games in three of his first four appearances as a Golden Knight. He ended up with eight points in ten games with Vegas. Before the pause, along with the super high block counts that he's been known for in fantasy, at least for a long time. Uh, do you think what we saw out of Martinez can continue moving forward? Like, should we expect him to be a big part of the Vegas decor in the playoffs and then next season, like seeing those top pairing minutes with Theodore and significant time on at least the second power play? Yeah, minutes wise, for sure. I don't know that we're going to see, you know, almost a point of game pace or anything like that. I think he can score a little bit more than, than what he did the last couple of seasons with the Kings. I think if you look at, you know, career numbers and things like that for Martinez, you know, in the high twenties, you know, maybe low thirties points wise is, is realistic because again, I think, I think it goes back to, you know, a little bit of the freedom that he's going to get with the Knights and the emphasis, you know, within the system to jump up in the play. It feels like in LA, he was sort of asked to, you know, especially toward the end there, be a little bit more of a stay-at-home guy, more of a defensive defenseman, not worry about jumping up the play, and also all those sorts of things. And I don't know that he's, you know, an offensive-minded guy or anything like that, but he can skate. He's got some mobility, and he, he can move the puck, and he seemed very comfortable in the system that the Golden Knights played in. And clearly right now, the way that the, the lineup sort of shakes out They've got Brady McNabb and Nate Schmidt as one pairing, and they've got Alec Martinez and Shea Theodore as the other pairing. And then the third pairing is Nick Holden, probably with Zach Whitecloud. That's how it ended. So the one thing that we learned and, and that I learned from covering a lot of uh, Golden Knight Sharps games when Pete DeBoer was the coach is that he is absolutely unafraid to shorten his bench with defensemen and if he's got to ride five or four defensemen for a game, like he is completely uncompromised in doing that. And if they get to the playoffs and they feel like we're going to shorten bench and, and you know, I'm going to match up and I'm going to put, you know, my top four defensemen out there as much as possible, Alec Martinez is going to 
taking a ton of minutes and a ton of opportunity with, you know, Shea Theodore probably is his partner and probably good line mates for the most part. I don't know how much he's going to do on a power play. It'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of how Pete DeBoer works the second unit and whether he's got like Nate Schmidt there or he's got Schmidt and Alec Martinez or, or how he kind of, you know, configures all of that. But at least in terms of like you asked, you know, how does Alec Martinez figure into their plans? Yeah, heavily. Like he's, he is in their top four and, and one of the guys that, you know, I think in that last few weeks really stabilized them. Yeah, I mean, Vegas is uh, really picking up these big pieces at the trade deadline. It's like a theme for them. Like they got Mark Stone a couple of years ago and then Martinez and Robin Leonard this year. Like, I guess that's it's cool that to have a team that's ready to go and upgrade at the deadline to go on a playoff run. Yeah, that seemed like a great acquisition for them. Uh, so you brought up Nate Schmidt. If you had to predict for next season, who's going to have more points between Martinez and Nate Schmidt as like the second highest scoring defenseman on the team? That's like such a fantastic question, by the way. In Vegas, they would love that. They would they they do what's called prop bets at the at the sports book, you know, kind of one guy versus the other. Like that's a fantastic prop bet. So my guess is Nate Schmidt. I, I would I would just say based on track record and you know, kind of the fact that he's a little bit more consistently been over 30 points. But yeah, I mean, I think Martinez, especially in that system and with the ice time that he'll probably get. I think he could challenge the 30-point mark, and that's really where where Schmidt's been. So probably pretty close, yeah. But I mean Schmidt. Okay, cool. Well, I I was wondering if maybe you would say like that Schmidt gets bumped down a little bit, like his upside gets bumped with Martinez coming in. Though it seems like already Schmidt got bumped down because before, for a while, it seemed like Vegas was running these like two even power plays where Schmidt and Theodore got pretty much even time. But now it seems like Pete DeBoer's got like Theodore out there for the majority of the power play and Schmidt's clearly like the secondary guy. So he was already, I guess, going to fall to around 30, 35 points anyway. Yeah, probably. I mean, he had tinkered a little bit. I mean, Theodore was obviously the main guy. And then they were running that second unit with, like, both Martinez and Schmidt for a little bit. And then, you know, kind of Schmidt had been running it for a while when um, Gallant was still there because they ran – they preferred, like, a 4 forward one defenseman setup. And they used that for, like, both units if they could do it. So it'll be interesting now that they have Martinez and a different coach – you know, going forward, how they look at that second unit and what they sort of want out of that. And maybe that evens up their their chances. Maybe maybe that, you know, maybe that makes them, you know, I guess maybe harder to differentiate, you know, when you're looking at it in terms of fantasy between the two. Yeah, well, of all the teams in the league, like Vegas is one of those teams that you could actually have a pretty nice looking second power play, right? Because if you have, let's say, I don't know, Pacioretty, Stasny, Stone, and and Carlson on the top power play, then that still leaves like Riley Smith and Marcia. So like some really good players to go with whatever defenseman, but obviously it depends on how much ice time they end up actually getting. All right, so I guess let's look now to the future, not to this upcoming playoffs, but there are a lot of listeners to Keeping Carlson who they're tuning in for the prospect talk. They're like, okay, I already know that Mark Stone is good. I already know that Shea Theodore is on the verge of breaking out, but I want to know about the 2019-17th overall pick, 
Peyton Krebs, who, uh, <laughs> who you brought up before, and I'm curious to get a sense of how he's looking right now one year after being drafted. He had a fantastic season this past year, went healthy, 60 points in 38 games with the Winnipeg Ice of the WHL. Unfortunately, he only played in those 38 games because he missed the start of the season with an Achilles injury, also missed some time at the end of February. So yeah, a lot of Vegas players spent a lot of time in the infirmary, unfortunately, uh, but yeah, got to imagine the Golden Knights organization was happy with what they've seen out of Krebs since picking him, right? Like, and is there any sense yet of if or when we should expect him to get a shot with the big club? Maybe another year off with him in terms of like really challenging for the roster, I think. Um, but yeah, I think they're super stoked that he fell to 17. You know, he was a guy that maybe was projected, you know, around the top 10. I mean, I think he was like 10th in the central scouting rankings for North American skaters during his draft year. Obviously that doesn't take into account like the international guys and, and what have you. So, so it's hard to know exactly where he would have slotted, but I think it was clear that his Achilles injury, you know, maybe bumped him down, made him available at 17 uh, for the golden Knights. And, and they feel like they got a steal. I think he's a guy physically that it's going to take a little bit, you know, like Cody Glass, like we talked about just to mature, you know, he's a, he's a guy, I'll use the scouting term, like he's projectable. You know, he's not a guy that physically developed right away at like 18, 19 years old. And, he, and he's got the, the physique that's, you know, ready to go. He, I mean, especially at the draft, like he looked 18. He looked young. You know, you know like I remember looking at him thinking like, oh my gosh, like you can tell he's, you know, would be like fresh out of high school or, or something like that. So, so the idea of, you know, him jumping into a man's league at the NHL and, and all that. I think it's probably too early. I think, you know, they'll take a long look at him, you know, next year. And I would expect that he would spend another year in juniors, probably absolutely dominate. Um, and then the year after that, you know, maybe he challenges for a roster spot or develops in the NHL. But, you know, again, I think he's a guy that, that it seems like from the little bit that, that I've seen of him, you know, just has has a lot of uh, character. You know, maybe down the road is, is a guy that they've talked about. He's, he's captain like every other team that he's played for. So he's got some clear leadership qualities. And in terms of on the ice, he's a playmaker. Um, you know, and maybe that means he's a guy that, that his ceiling is like, you know, a, a second-line center. Maybe he's a guy that challenges as a first-line center. But, you know, I, I absolutely think they're, they're happy that, that he fell you know, to, to where he is. But I think, you know, the one theme that you heard me talk about this with Cody Glass and, and kind of with this, George McPhee had a quote and we in the media totally latched on to it. I mean, it's become like this inside joke and, and things like that. But he, he made a comment about how the Golden Knights prefer to overcook a prospect rather than rush him. And, and I think what that sort of means in terms of Peyton Krebs is that, you know, they're not going to be in a hurry to get him to the NHL. If he has to spend a year eventually in the AHL, so be it. But they're going to do everything, you know, sort of for his development and and what they have to do. And when he's ready, you know, it'll, it'll you know, it'll show up. And, and just real quick, I mean, I guess if nothing else, like he played the season, so – he should be 100% in terms of the Achilles. I don't think that's an issue at this point going forward. And, you know, 
if nothing else, I think maybe that's what would help them, uh, you know, land a player that maybe they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise at 17. Yeah, it seems like the other teams must have been a little bit short-sighted if they were worried about this injury because, yeah, so he took a little longer to start his season in the WHL, but then once he got there, he like looks like he dominated. So, yeah, lucky for Vegas to get such a good pick. And, okay, here's another prop bet for you that I don't think Vegas would actually make a prop bet like this. Like, who do you think ends up sort of like slotting in higher in the lineup and say three years from now between Krebs and Cody Glass? Like, who's seen as the guy... You mentioned Krebs is like a potential number one center. So does that mean you're leading him? Yeah, see, that's, I don't know. That's the hard part. That's what the the scouts get paid for. I would love to see them more. I haven't seen enough of Krebs yet. The The only thing I've seen of him really is like some, some video, some highlights on Twitter, um, things like that, you know, like on the Winnipeg Ice uh, website or, or, or whatever. I don't know that I get a real feel for it. Like I have to see yeah. them both at like a training camp and, and all that. I mean, right now, if you, if you told me, you know, you have to pick, I would say, I would imagine Cody Glass would probably be the number one center and Krebs would be number two, but you know, you never want to limit guys and, and, you know, maybe it flip flops and, you know, maybe that turns into a good problem for the Knights if they have, you know, two number ones or, you know, I say this is a compliment too. Maybe they have two number twos. Like that's not a bad thing either. Sure. Hey, well, I definitely know it's not a problem to have two number ones. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins have taught us that <laughs> Yeah, it works out fine. Uh, another player that I was asked to ask you about, patron Michael wanted me to ask you about Jack Dugan. And I know you know a lot about him. I saw a bunch of your articles about him over the last couple of months. So he is a 22-year-old that was a finalist for the Hobie Baker Trophy this past season. He had this great season in the NCAA, 52 points in 34 games with Providence College. Uh, and I saw that GM Kelly McCrimmon announced in early May that Dugan agreed to join the organization because I know there was a risk that maybe he'd go into free agency or something. So is Dugan someone that people should be excited about joining the team Either I'm not sure what the update was for this playoff. I think he's like not eligible or is eligible for this playoff run. But either way, I'm more curious to know like it, what's the plan for him like next season. Is he someone that could be in the lineup as soon as next year? Yeah, so I've gotten a total headache trying to figure out what's going on with him. So I'll explain the situation a little bit. Basically, like he is in the exact same situation as like Kaprizov in Minnesota and Sorokin and with the Islanders, um, Perunovic with the Blues and, and all of that where the NHL did not allow them or is not allowing them to apparently play in the 2019-20 season. So, like, they're going to be ineligible to play for the upcoming postseason tournament. Apparently, though, and, and a source told me that what might happen, and this gets into a little bit of the technical contract stuff, but what might happen is Dugan and, like, those players might be able to actually sign for the 2019 20 season and burn the first year on their entry level contract, even though they would be ineligible to play in the postseason. So that might be like the compromise, basically like the NHL doesn't want and Bill Daly said this, like they don't want ringers. And he used that phrase. He, he referred to them as ringers for the postseason. and not to veer off topic too much. It's totally ludicrous of the NHL to think that way. Because these guys would all be eligible to play in the postseason had everything been normal and we not experienced the pandemic and, and all that. 
to give an example, Jack Dugan is in the exact same situation as Kale McCarr uh, last year, where once his college season was done, like he could sign and McCarr signed with the Avalanche and then jumped in during the playoffs. So had it not gone through the pandemic and all that, Jack Dugan would have been in the exact same situation and could have done the exact same thing. But it doesn't look like that's going to be able to happen. In terms of like long term, so I'm going to go back a little bit in terms of our discussion with Alex Tuck. And I bring that up because I don't know if Jack Dugan is quite ready for the NHL right away. I think he needs a little bit of time just to, to like adapt to the speed of the pro game, whether that's, you know, playing an NHL game or, you know, playing some time in the AHL, getting a cup of coffee in the NHL. Well, however the development plan, the Golden Knights, you know, feel is best. But I don't know right away that he can jump into the lineup. That being said, I think it's possible that if you look at the Golden Knights, just depth overall, and you were to say, like, where would Jack Dugan be a good fit? I could see totally, like, third-line wing. And if you can plug him in and get production for an entry-level contract from a third-line wing, well, then maybe our, con- our conversation earlier about Alex Tuck becomes a little bit more relevant. And, like, maybe he becomes a little bit more expendable. Maybe all that stuff that, you know, we were talking about in terms of could you trade Alex Tuck? Could you get something in return? You know, maybe now all of a sudden you have somebody on the third line that down the road could be, you know, a replacement. So I don't know that Jack Dugan's going to be like a 20-25 goal scorer. You know, some of the college comparisons I've, I've heard or I don't think are fair, like just because he led the league, you know, or led the NCAA in scoring, it doesn't mean he's going to produce like Paul Correa or something like that. Like it's just – it's not a fair comparison. You know, he's not Jack Eichel or something. Um, but the Golden Knights might, you know, they might have hit on a fifth-round gem. I mean, he's a guy that went through his first year of draft draft eligibility and wasn't even taken. And the Golden Knights took him in the fifth round. So to have a guy that you take in the fifth round in his second year of eligibility who might turn into a bona fide NHL player, that's pretty good scouting. That's pretty good drafting. And – you know, maybe it allows the Gold Knights some flexibility in some areas that, you know, you didn't think they would have. Yeah, it's obviously super convenient. I still remember when everyone was going nuts about who Jimmy Vc was going to sign for, and he turned out to just be like a middle six player at best. So yeah, if Dugan can be that and someone that they could just plug in, and then like you said, you have flexibility to maybe trade Alex Tuck for a goalie or whatever they need to do. It's so crazy what you said about how they were saying that they don't want the NHL teams to bring in ringers just because like they drafted these players. Like it's not as if, you know, like someone gets to take Jack Eichel because Buffalo is not making the playoffs. It's uh, it's their players. Yeah. It's bizarre. And like I said, it's the exact same thing that McCarty last year with the Adelaide. So I, at least for me personally, I don't understand why it's any different in this case than all the other times, like it seems to be negotiated, bargained in the CBA that those players in that situation, they would, excuse me, that they would be eligible. So for the NHL to kind of move the goalposts, kind of change on the fly, I don't know that it's totally fair. And I guess maybe the compromise from, you know, what the source sort of indicated to me is that those players could burn that year, even though they can't play. So for Dugan, maybe that means he gets the free agency a little quicker for, you know, a guy like Sorokin or, or whatever, and 
New York with the Islanders if he was signing a one-year entry-level contract, then maybe it means he can burn it right away and goes to, you know, restricted free agency. Maybe he gets a little more, bit more money. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it's just a, it's a strange situation overall because, like I said, all those guys would be eligible before, so why change? Yeah, I haven't heard about this, and I'd be curious to know the answer. It seems like a odd decision. Uh, okay, then a couple, I guess these are like lower-level prospects, and maybe you'll see something that people will be interested in hearing. Both uh, patrons Michael and William wanted me to ask about a couple of defensemen in 21-year-old Nicholas Hag, and then you did mention, as a third-pairing guy, Zach Whitecloud. Uh, are either of these guys people that people should have on their radars that you know they'll be able to stick with the team for a full season sometime soon and potentially make an impact. I remember I noticed Haig was getting some power play time earlier on in the year. Maybe even, well, I think he was bumping like Nate Schmidt from some power play time. I know, I think I noticed that because I had Nate Schmidt on my fantasy team at the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, obviously hard to read too much into their stats so far since they've seen so little ice time. But do you see any significant future for Hag or White Cloud? Yeah, I actually do. So White Cloud in particular this year, um, during the pause, signed the two-year extension. And once he got into the lineup, really kind of solidified his spot. He seems like a guy who, you know, grabbed the hold. Um, you know, I guess, you know, you call it the bottom pair, you know, six defensemen, whatever you want to, you know, phrase it as. But but he seems to be the guy that emerged there. Derek England, who, you know, has sort of been a mainstay from day one, hadn't played. I think it was like 17 out of the last 18 games before the positing was like the final 13 games that he was a healthy scratch. So it looked like Zach Whitefoot had, you know, bumped in from the lineup and found a pairing with, uh, with Nick Holden, I would expect at least for training camp and probably into the postseason that they would go with that and we'll see how it works. And at least at this point, you probably have to project Zach Whitecloud as one of the defensemen for next year. England is, an unrestricted free agent. He's 38. I think it's probably fair to bring up the retirement word and, you know, at least ask and, and question whether this will be his last season. Um, and then John Merrill is also a UFA. Uh, and they re-signed Nick Holden in February. And that sort of, at least from the outside, looked like a commitment from, you know, toward Holden over Merrill. Looks like that's kind of the choice they made, and I'll probably let Merrill walk in free agency. And what that would do is open up a spot for somebody like Nick Hay. Um, what happened with him was he was there for the first half of the season. He was kind of on the AHL show a little bit, but for the most part, um, was in the lineup. And then when Pete DeBoer got there, they decided to take a look at Zach Whitecloud and sort of for salary cap reasons. And, and how to have him sash the roster and things like that. Nick Hague was the one that went down to the AHL. Zach Whitecloud comes up and, you know, finds a home, and Nick Hague was never able to get back in the NHL. But I would imagine, you know, next year as, again, salary cap stays frozen, and they look to, you know, getting production from entry-level contracts and younger players and things like that, that Nick Hague would be, you know, probably one of the first guys that they look to, you know, as, you know, replacements, I guess you could say, if you let Merrill walk and, you know, if England retires or if he signs elsewhere or, or something like that, you know, Nick Hague, they have a couple other guys in the minors that, you know, will probably compete in training camp. But Nick Hague was a guy that, for all intents and purposes, won the job, you know, out of camp this year. So I would, would fully expect him 
to be in the mix. And in terms of just production, White Cloud is, is more of a stay-at-home guy, not a guy you're going to see, you know, points and, and things like that. He's not going to get power play time. Nick Hague, on the other hand, has his shot is nicknamed the Hager Bomb. Um, for obvious reasons, if you see it, and he's got a little bit more potential to, you know, maybe show up on a number two power play. Um, maybe show up, you know, in terms of the score sheet and, you know, how does he go slip through? Um, you know, maybe, maybe not to assist. I mean, he's got a higher upside in terms of his offensive potential and things like that. It's probably just going to be a matter of how much ice time Nick Hay gets and, and whether he's able to, you know, sort of use, you know, that to, uh, to produce. But I would fully expect him at least to be in the mix if not on the roster to begin next season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there you go, uh, Michael and William. Yeah, keep your eyes on Haig and White Cloud. Seems like they both have a decent chance chance to stay with the team. And David, like this has been awesome. You've given me so much time. I feel like afterwards we should go and do some Hager bombs to celebrate this great podcast that we just finished. Um, but uh, before I let you go, one question that we've been asking all of the beat writers that I'd love to get your take on is if you could pick one Golden Knight that you expect to be the biggest positive surprise next season, someone who maybe isn't as high on people's radars as they should be, and then on the flip side, one player who you think is going to be the biggest disappointment, someone who people are maybe expecting too much from and they're not going to get what they're expecting, who, who would your picks be? So I'm still going to write out stuff as the positive, as the surprise, as the guy who's got it all the upside and if he gets the ice time and, and a center that he clicks with, I still think, you know, maybe not a 50 point guy if he's on the third line, but I think he can threaten 20 goals and I think he can exceed 40 points. I, I, I just still think there's more there with him. And if I'm going to pick a surprise, you know, or, or like a disappointment, honestly, all right, I'm going to go with Flurry. Um, uh. Just because of age and just because of we've seen, you know, over the last year or two that there's been a dip, you know, in the numbers and save percentage and things like that from, you know, at least the first year that he got to Vegas and seemed to be rejuvenated. So, you know, 36-year-old goaltender, by the time the season probably gets started, his birthday's in November and, you know, maybe just gotten a little bit more healthy, but yeah, I... I don't know. Goaltenders after the age of 35 tend to decline. So I'll, I'll kind of ride the, the numbers with that one. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Even Henrik Lundqvist is starting to show some chinks. So obviously it's going to happen to all of them, including Marc-Andre Fleury. So yeah, thank you so much again for all this time and all these insights about the Vegas Golden Knights. Obviously, everyone listening, clearly you need to go and follow David Shane on Twitter, uh, at David. Uh, Shane LVRJ and Shane isn't spelled the way you think, but it's, it's linked in the show notes. So just click the link and make sure to follow Dave on Twitter. And of course you could read your articles over on the review journal. Is there anything else that you want to let people know about that they should check out? Yeah, we do a podcast as well. Um, you got to dig a little bit on the review journal website. You find the podcast. It's called golden edge. So we do it weekly. Um, you should, you know, talk about all the news, what's going on and break down, you know, roster stuff, lineups, give our thoughts on, you know, all kinds of goofy stuff. And we usually veer off into, you know, all the typical podcast talk and, and all that. We have fun with it. So so that is one thing for everybody to check out as well. 
Okay, cool. The Golden Edge. I'll make sure to link to that as well. Uh, this is a lot of fun. And uh, that sounds like a lot of fun as well. I'll definitely check it out myself. So Dave, thanks so much again for coming on Keeping Carlson. This has been a blast and good luck to the Golden Knights in this upcoming playoff run. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much again to David Shane for joining me to talk Golden Knights. This was so much fun. What a deep team. I still, it's still so hard to believe it. This was just an expansion team three years ago. Now we're talking about all these like defensemen that they have. They just got Martinez. The, I guess goaltending is the one place where they're going to have to figure some things out. But yeah, they have an Alex Tuck. They might be able to just trade for a goal because they're bursting with eligible wingers on the team. So uh, yeah, great team. Great interview. I had a lot of fun. Thanks again, David. Thanks again to you, the listeners, for tuning in. And I hope you've been enjoying these Beat Writer interviews as we've been churning along. That was number 20. So just 11 to go. And we will have gone through the entire league. So thanks for joining me for this fun journey. I'd love to hear from you. If you've been listening, if you've never said hello, tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. Let us know you're out there. And uh, let us know, obviously, if you have any feedback or suggestions on the show. Uh, And you know what? That's it. I'm ready to cue the outro music and I'll just go ahead and read you the credits and then we can all go to bed. So this episode of the Keeping Carls of Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabber Hockey and supported by our patrons. You can get more information about our patron program over at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. By the way, uh, logos by Brandon Weave, outro music by Pat Roach, and this episode was researched with help from Dabber Hockey, Dabber Prospects, Natural Stat Trick, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, HockeyGoalies.org, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and, of course, David Shane and his work over at the Las Vegas Review Journal. So, once again, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next Beat Writer interview that will probably be out in a couple of days. And until then, keep on keeping Carl Song.